Today we're reading from Luke 4, 14 to 22. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He taught in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. He went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and on the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. The scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written, The Spirit of the Lord is on me, because he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners, and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him, and he began by saying to them, Today the Spirit is fulfilled in your hearing. All spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. In one of my uh, many years of uh, education, which really have been too many, I think, as I think back on it, um, (laughs) I uh, studied under two favorite professors. Um, One man's name was George Lindbeck. He was an internationally famous theologian, uh, and a very devoted follower of Christ, uh, a brilliant man. Another of my favorite professors was named Nick Waldersdorf. Uh, he, too, uh, was a brilliant teacher and thinker, a philosopher, and um, I loved studying under both of those people. But on occasion, when I was in one of their classes, uh, I would listen carefully, and uh, having done the reading, I would try to understand with as much depth as I could what was going on. And, you know, every once in a while you get the opportunity to give some input. <clears throat> Depending on the class, you better give some input. And at any rate, on occasion when I would give input, I would say something, you know, and then I would hear these dreaded words. Now, they at once excited me and struck terror in my heart. And here were the dreaded words. First, it started with a, hmm, hmm. And then they would say, say more about that. Are you kidding me? I just said everything I have to say. There's nothing else there. The well's dry, okay? I just thought you would think that was brilliant. I don't want to say anything else. But that was important, that I say something else, that I explain myself, that I think on my feet, that I try to understand what I understand and what I don't understand. And sometimes the further explanation went well and other times it didn't. If I were to ask you, um, tell me, what is the gospel? And you were to give me a really short answer, maybe just a couple of sentences to try to summarize it. And then I would say to you, hmm, tell me more. wonder what you'd say. 
For the next three weeks, we're going to be doing a series on the gospel. We're just calling it the largeness of the gospel. Because the good news concerning Jesus Christ is huge. I don't mean huge in epic, though that's true. I mean huge in breadth. It is so many things. It's amazing. As a matter of fact, uh, there were people who were given the opportunity to answer that question. Or maybe I should say they seized the opportunity to answer that question. They call them the gospel writers. And in some of your old Bibles, the gospel writers are introduced this way. The gospel according to Matthew. The gospel according to Mark. The gospel according to Luke. The gospel according to John. And they introduced to you and to me the largeness of the gospel. By the way, you know this, right? They weren't just recalling historical events. They weren't just giving a narrative of what Jesus said and did. They had an agenda. They had an agenda. Their agenda, for the most part, was to share the good news with as many people as would listen so that whoever listened would join into the reality of the good news. And because they had an agenda and because they had a personality, they told the gospel story in a variety of ways. So Mark, as fully true as Matthew, tells it differently than Luke. And John differently than all four, because it's huge. So, having said that, I'm going to be ridiculously reductionistic, okay? I'm going to look at the Gospels for three weeks in a row. I'm going to suggest that the Gospel is three things, but let me say at least three things. Because otherwise, I just walked myself into a corner. The gospel is more than three things. It's huge. It's large. But today, I want to consider one thing that it is. Especially one thing that it is that most of us in what we call the evangelical tradition thoroughly embrace, and I think for a good reason. But before I talk about that, which is the good news as redemption... And before I talk about the other topic next week, the good news as compassion, and before I talk about the third part of the gospel, the good news as justice, I want to remind you of the context that Jesus introduced the good news into. He went back to his hometown of Nazareth in a region called Galilee. Sometimes even biblical scholars will describe Galilee and Nazareth as sort of the backwoods of uh, the Judean hillside. It couldn't be any... More wrong than that, I think. It wasn't backwaters. Galilee was different than Jerusalem. It certainly wasn't Rome, but Galilee was a bustling region. Nazareth probably, though we don't know for sure, but it had 20,000 people in it. Pretty good-sized little village, wouldn't you say? Galilee was much bigger in terms of region and in terms of people, and it also had a lot of things going on in it. There were three major roads that came through Galilee and intersected with it. One road came from the south at Jerusalem, and that road traditionally carried large numbers of pilgrims going to and from Jerusalem. That was quite a look at life. 
that Jesus had growing up as a boy. Another road came from further south all the way down to Egypt. It was called the road along the sea. It came up the Mediterranean Sea and passed through Galilee. And that road was huge with commerce and trade. People bringing things from Egypt and to Egypt. That was a major interstate highway. And then there was another road that came from the east into the west, which would have been Galilee. From the forest regions of the Roman Empire in the east, silk trade and all those kinds of things that came from the east. And that made Galilee a very interesting place. Galilee also had a history, and I could go into the history of Galilee, what actually happened there in the Old Testament. So many of the stories, fascinating stories, like Jezebel and Jehu, all happened right there. It was an amazing place, so Jesus went back to that hometown, and he went into the synagogue on that day, which was, the scripture says, his practice. Uh, Just a minute. His Practice. Let's put it in contemporary terms. Jesus went to church. That was his practice. He got up on the Sabbath and he went to his congregation. That was important to him. As a pastor, one of the most frustrating things I have to deal with, there's lots of them, One of the most frustrating things I have to deal with is people who come to this church or stories I hear about people going to other churches. And they stay a while and they examine it and they look at it, that church or this, and then they say, there's got to be a better one somewhere. We we can do better than this. The preaching's pretty bad. Well, that's a given here anyway. Um, The people don't do community very well. the, The list goes on, right? You know what I'm talking about. You understand. Did you ever consider the fact that Jesus worshipped in a local congregation? The Son of God, who knew everything there was to know about God, and righteousness, and people, and history, and the list goes on, that Son of God worshipped with People who were horribly imperfect. In congregations that were pathetically dysfunctional. And he went to minister to others. And to learn about God. All I'm saying, it's a little aside. If Jesus could put up with the church... We ought to be able to. If Jesus could learn something about God in the congregation, can't we? Okay, that was a sidebar. Just had to say it. It didn't it didn't ever occur to me before. I looked at it this week and I thought, oh my word. Jesus worked in a local congregation like mine. And he saw all the warts and he kept going. So what was that local congregation like? Well, it was a synagogue, um, a place away from the temple. No sacrifices took place there. What did they do? They got together to worship. What did the structure of the worship service look like? Something like this. They began by reciting the Shema, which is that passage in Deuteronomy, Hero Israel, the Lord your God is one 
God. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind. And write these commandments on your forehead, your wrist, and the doorpost. And teach them to your children as you walk by the way. They, they quoted that. They did it every Saturday, our Sunday. Then following that, they had prayers. Prayers for the congregation, for those in need. Prayers for the world. Following that, they had a reading of the text for the day. And following that, they had an exposition of the text from the speaker. And then after that, they had a benediction. They all went home. Sound familiar? Everything but somebody leading us in worship with a guitar like John Jackson. By the way, good to have you, John. For those of you who don't know, John's an alumni of ECC from way back when. Um, he looks a lot different than he did when he was here in college, but he used to uh, help us lead worship. It's great to have him here uh, helping us out this summer. So they got together and they worshiped not unlike we do. But imagine the shock when it was time for Jesus to expound the text. I can't imagine teaching, by the way, sitting down. But that's what they did. They didn't stand up. I think better on my feet. They read the text and Jesus walked up in front of them and sat down like a rabbi. And then he said this. The scripture you just read was all about me. Just imagine that, will you? I mean, I've said some stupid things up here, but I've never said anything like that. I mean, they were coming out of their skin. Are you kidding me? We've had prophets here before, but we haven't heard anybody talk like that. And there were two sides to it, right? The one side of it is they were amazed by his teaching and his authority. The other side of it that we didn't read, which is later in the passage, they decided they were going to drive him over a cliff because he was a blasphemer. And he slid away from them. Welcome back home, Jesus, huh? That's the way he announces the good news. I've come to preach the good news to the poor. And he goes on. So what did he come to preach? And what did he preach for the rest of his ministry? It's large. It's huge. And and we're going to try to discover it in three weeks. But just for one thing today, he preached the good news of redemption. Among other things, the good news of redemption. And what does that good news of redemption look like according to Jesus and according to the rest of the epistles in the New Testament? Again, much could be said, but I'm only going to mention just a few things. Redemption as the good news in the New Testament, in the Gospels and in the writings of Paul and the other apostles begins, it seems, always with a recognition of a need. Do you ever notice how often Jesus encounters someone and is able to speak in their life When they recognize their need, did you ever notice how often people come to Jesus and that's the beginning of the conversation, a recognition of their need? Jesus, I'm blind. I'd really like to see. Jesus, I'm sick. I don't want to be sick. Jesus, my daughter has died. I hate death. Jesus, there's a storm and it's going to kill us. We need to be saved. 
It seems that the Gospel, the good news concerning Jesus Christ, always comes by a recognition of need. It happens over and over again. And it's so often the case that Jesus reaches out and heals the physical need, and then in the context of healing that physical need, speaks beyond the physical need to the soul. His miracles are not just about healing the blind. They're about spiritual sight for the blind. They're not just about raising the dead like Lazarus, his friend. They're about eternal life. Jesus routinely walks into the lives of people in desperate need who are crying out for something and gives them a picture of eternal life. So the first thing is the redemption is a recognition of a need. It always happens. How many times have um, you tried to share the good news with someone? A friend, a neighbor, a family member, and their eyes just kind of glaze over. (laughs) Yeah, oh, that's great. I'm glad that works for you. You seem so happy. And then, not always, but sometimes, no frequently, the entrance into their heart is through a great need. When their back's to the wall, when they're absolutely desperate, when they realize the demons that they have are controlling their life, when they realize that everything they've done to construct a life has created chaos in their life, when they realize the list goes on and then, then at that point, sometimes they're ready to hear the news about redemption. I heard a story like that this week. I'm not going to tell it without the permission of the person. But the description was, I've been talking to this guy for a long time about Jesus. And then everything came apart in his life. And one day he called me from his front porch and said, can you tell me about this Jesus? And he told him about that Jesus again. And this person accepted him by faith. Why? Because the need was so great. That's often the way faith comes to us, right? That's often the way redemption comes. So redemption as a good news is a recognition of need. The redemption as the good news is also repentance of sins. You remember when John the Baptist introduced the whole notion of good news. The Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. When he introduced people to Jesus, he started out with repentance. He said, if you want to be a part of this thing, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to be a part of the kingdom of God, the starting point is repentance. That's a hard thing to hear. But it's an important part of the good news. You know, the main point of so many of even the miracle stories is about that. Remember the miracle story of the young man who was let down through a roof and Jesus healed him? It was not just about a healing. Before long, it became apparent it was about Jesus, the Son of God. Jesus, the Son of God, who in a singular way has the authority to forgive sins. 
The whole episode was about forgiveness of sins. The gospel is about forgiveness of sins, and it's good news. Sometimes we have gotten to the place that we kind of don't even believe in it anymore, sins. It's just something that we're messed up with, uh, something that was inherited by us through our parents or some circumstance or some weakness or some on and on. It's sin. And the good news is when you realize it, you can repent of it and redemption comes. Redemption is not only good news because you recognize a need and because you confess your sins. Redemption is the good news because it comes through the cross. Um, Remember when Peter had heard all about the good news? He'd spent three years with Jesus. He thought he had it figured out. He saw people healed by Jesus' hands. He saw people invited into the kingdom of God. He saw people turn their life over to Jesus and follow. He saw remarkable things. And and Jesus basically said, the good news, the gospel, is not yet complete. Because the good news... The gospel is the cross. And Peter said, no way! You've got to be kidding me. That can't be the good news. It's inappropriate for you, Jesus. You're not going to the cross. And Jesus said to him, Peter, get behind me like you're Satan. This is my mission from God. The good news is the cross. Let's make it more graphic. It wasn't just Peter. Jesus, who was fully God and fully man, came to the point of His own crucifixion and in the garden said to God, Oh God, surely there's another way. And the answer is no. There is no other way. And Jesus knew it from the beginning. It was His mission The good news about the gospel of Jesus Christ is that God in the flesh died for sin and conquered sin in the flesh so we could have eternal life and resurrection. It wasn't an alternative plan. It wasn't just a good plan to show how much God loved us. It was the only plan. It was God's plan. And it is the pathway to salvation. So the good news about redemption is to recognize your need. For sure. The good news about redemption is to repent of your sins. And the good news about redemption is the cross. The good news. The good news about redemption is not just a recognition of a need, repentance of sin. The good news about redemption is reconciliation with God. What did the cross do? It reconciled us to God. What do people long for in the deepest part of their being? When things are really down, when they're really honest with you, they want a relationship with something beyond them. We call it spirituality. 
You can call it God. You can call it incredibly deep longing. They know they're alienated from God and they want to be reconciled to God. They want to live at peace with God. And the pathway to the reconciliation that they long for is the cross. So the good news about the cross is the good news concerning reconciliation. It was in the cross, Paul says, that we're reconciled to God. We couldn't reconcile ourselves on our own. And finally, the good news concerning Jesus Christ is not only recognition of need, the repentance of sins, redemption through the cross, the reconciliation with God. Finally, the good news concerning Jesus Christ is a reorientation on life. You know what happens when you receive the good news? Everything changes. Or it ought to. I've got to admit, when everything changes, we have our periods where it seems like it hadn't changed. But it should. The good news should just change everything about our life. The good news should change the way we live. You know what the good news says? It says that your life is no longer your own. The good news says you're bought with a price. The good news says that God through Jesus Christ purchased you by His blood. And so your life is not your own. So the good news is you don't have to live for yourself anymore. Now wait a minute, you think to yourself, that's what I live for. Can you believe the freedom if we ever understood that that's not what we have to live for? Is there anything more confining and slave-inducing than living for self? If there is, I don't know what it is. Because as a self-centered human being, when I understand my selfishness, I understand how thoroughly miserable I am. The good news concerning Jesus Christ is that your life is reoriented and your life is not your own. Your life is God's. And so all your time and all your talents and all your treasures are given to you by God to use for Him. So the good news concerning Jesus Christ is you get to live every hour of every day with all the energy and zest for life that you have for Jesus Christ. You know what's great about that? What's great about that is the story of the loaves and fishes on the Sea of Galilee where a little boy says, here, I got a couple of things to eat. I'll share my lunch with 5,000 people. And the disciples say, there goes a stupid kid again. And Jesus says, give it to me. And he takes what the little boy has and he multiplies it for 5,000 people and more. The good news is that you can give your life to Jesus and he can do that and more. Is that incredible news? It is. It's way better than living a self-centered life like I'm inclined to live. 
So what's the, the application for this good news? What are we supposed to do with it? First of all, if it's not your story, if that's not the good news for you, I wish it was, and I would love to talk to you about that. But if it is your story, if you've received the good news, and I would assume most of you have, if you receive that good news, what do you do now? <laughs> what do you do with it? Well, first, I think we pray for opportunities to share it, right? If we receive this good news of redemption, we pray for opportunities to share that good news. And then, then we become just like the apostles. Now, this is going to sound weird, but I've got a job and you've got a job. Just like Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. You know what it's called? The good news according to Bob. That is so weird, isn't it? <laughs> it just sounds so wrong. But understand what I'm saying. It's the good news. In the way I've experienced it. It's the good news that I share with others because God has been so good to me. It's the good news of what God has done according to Bob. Of course, it's much bigger than that. And I better be sure that I'm sharing the good news the way the Scripture shares the good news. But in reality, the major point of emphasis of the good news for me is to share it with others. The good news according to my life. So you tell the story of what happened to you. We really make evangelism, sharing the good news, complicated. Sometimes we come up with methods for sharing the good news. I'm not saying any of those are wrong. There's great methods out there. But have you ever just considered the most simple method of all? What Jesus did for you. I don't know anything that's more powerful than that good news. My dad told me uh, years ago when I decided I was going to take on this vocation of preaching. He said, Bob, there's going to be times where you're going to get into the bulrushes. And what he meant is get stuck in the thicket. You got... All prepared what you want to say, you're trying to say it, and you walk yourself into the weeds, and you're in over your head, and everything in your mouth feels like cotton, and you can't say what you want to say. And he said, when that happens, just stop and tell your story. I've done that a few times. You know what else he said? He said, watch the Apostle Paul. Whenever it came down to the most important epic moments of his life, he told his story. The road to Damascus. You don't have all the words? You don't know how to say it? Just tell your story. It's the good news. Pray for opportunities to share that good news. Take the opportunity to live that good news. That old... Worn out statement, you may be the only Bible anybody will ever read is true. Live the good news, love others because 
God has loved you. Forgive others because God has forgiven you. Serve others because Jesus Christ came to seek and to save and to serve the world. Live the good news. And finally, give thanks for it. Have you ever noticed how many of our songs in worship are songs of praise for what we've been given by God? Redemption through Jesus Christ. If you haven't noticed, start looking at it. We sing it all the time. We ought to sing it all the time. We ought to sing it together. We ought to sing it when we're apart. We ought to live it. We ought to sing it. There's a a final story that I know you are familiar with. It's a story of Paul and Silas in the Philippian jail. They'd been sharing the good news. They threw out a demon and a young woman and gave her freedom. And then they got thrown in jail. While they were in jail, languishing away in the stocks, after they'd been beaten within an inch of their life, what did they do? They started singing praises to God. And what happened? An earthquake brought about by God shook open the doors and shook off their shackles. And everyone could walk out. And the jailer rushed in with a light. And he was about ready to kill himself. Because he knew the meaning of life, right? (laughs) He had everything well ordered. He was a jailer in the Roman Empire. He knew what to do. And Paul said, stop. We're all here. Don't do yourself any harm. Because they were singing. And the jailer fell down on his knees and he said, Sir, what must I do to be saved? And Paul said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. You and your whole household will be saved. It's almost like the jailer fell down like a prisoner. I got to have help. I need to be redeemed. I must be saved. Do you ever wonder if a bunch more of those people in the prison became believers? I do. I just, I just bet some of them did. Here's the point. When you walk through life, keep singing. Always keep singing. Because the prisoners are listening. And it might impart to them the very grace of God. Isa sang a song that's beautiful, wasn't it? The end of the song said this, Let the essence of my life be a song that others want to sing. That's the good news is redemption. I share it. Will you pray with me? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we are so grateful that you have offered us the good news in Jesus Christ. We're also grateful that that good news is as different as everybody's DNA. Not because it's different in substance, but because it's different in experience. Because every one of us is a different person walking through life in a different kind of way and encountering your grace in multiple ways. So we thank you for how you 
encounter us in all those ways. And we pray that you will help us to use our life just to share your grace, just to sing your praise and let people hear. We're grateful, Lord, that it's not up to us that the sharing of the good news should accomplish salvation in someone's heart. It's up to you. But it is up to us to pray for opportunities to share it, to live it, and to thank you for it. And as we pray for that, Lord, we're sure you'll open up doors of opportunity. And we're sure because of your grace, others will come to know you. And for that, we thank you. In Christ's name, amen.